Welcome to Citadel Dropouts, a Game of Thrones podcast for the Daily Beast. I'm Spencer Ackerman, and I'm a senior national security correspondent at the Daily Beast. And I'm Laura Hudson, a culture and entertainment critic at Wired and lots of other places. Citadel Dropouts is a conversation between two friends and Game of Thrones fanatics about how the characters and stories in that world intersect with this world in terms of politics, sociology, diplomacy, feminism, and war. While we aren't a recap podcast and aren't setting out to spoil anyone, if you care about spoilers and haven't caught up with the show, you should probably do that before listening. So, uh, we have our major battle episode uh, for the second to last episode of the year. Um, Before we get into talking about uh, what we found thematically significant, I think we have to pose a question that's kind of been hanging over not just our last two episodes, but, you know, the more I cast my mind back, back for a while, and that's this. So tell me, Laura, if you can think of if you can think of an example, because I can't think of one, what has Tyrion proposed as a strategy since Blackwater Bay in season two that's worked out? Uh, I must have done something good in Essos, maybe. I remember when we were talking about that last year, we we, we found it, I think I might have been... Challenging is a charitable way of putting it. I I, I might have defended the decision to kind of defer um, a confrontation with the the masters until a point of strength is is possibly the only really defensible interpretation of that. But like clearly, it failed, um, and also as clearly, it sacrificed uh, the the interests and the well being of the freed people of Marine. So that wasn't a good decision. Um, and I can't really think of anything he did, particularly when proposing as a prisoner the trial by combat, because that obviously was a kind of Oberyn uh, Martell ex machina, and that also didn't work. And nothing he really did in season three as uh, Master of Coin, I can think of really, you know, moved the dial in any way. So, you know, all of that is to say... Given the absolute insanity and lack of, you know, meaningful strategy, lack of meaningful resolution, even should the strategy succeed, of what Tyrion's proposed for this crazy, you know, catch a white and then, oh, is Tyrion just an overrated strategist and, you know, dining out off of his successes when he was Joffrey's hand? Well, and I'm thinking back to those now, and uh, even his decision to send Marcella to Dorne, that did not work out well. Uh, something that originally looked like a smart move. Uh, he sent Slint to the wall, uh, which was uh, a good move for him, although that didn't end up being as good for John. I guess that was kind of a good move. But yeah, I, th- I think you have a really fair point that I don't, I think that we've gotten this idea of Tyrion in our heads as this sort of master strategist. Uh, I think because we like him a lot and because that's his thing, right? He reads and he thinks and he has witty, clever things to say. But I don't actually think he's been particularly successful in terms of, you know, manifesting these smart ideas in the real world. You know, I, he maybe he's just more book smart 
than he is anything else because it it seems like when it comes down to actually uh coming up with and executing plans that work politically it it he hasn't had a strong showing now in fairness most of what you do in terms of statecraft is going to fail. The real world is a messy place and imposing order on it is the work of a lifetime or several lifetimes. And even then, often won't really succeed. So if you get a couple good things going and you're able to to pull them off, maybe that's as best as, as, as anyone can ask for. But it really does seem to be less charitable than that, that... Tyrion is is kind of overrated at this point, and we're we're coming to perhaps the end of his utility. Um, where he's the strongest is in knowing uh, the enemy that that he's had to contend with for his whole life, which is his family. Um, so that's something of a redeeming uh, ploy, one one would think. But at the same time, this strategy that he set out last week, that both John and Daenerys have now executed, we saw. This week, with some truly disastrous consequences, is this idea that if you capture a white, basically, you know, a zombie that the White Walkers have made, and you present it to Cersei Lannister, something will happen that will redound to their benefit. Uh, They're, you know, clearly relying on um, some kind of uh, recognition on the part of 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 the the Lannister regime that there is some broader enemy out there um, in order to I don't know if it's unite against them together which we discussed last week doesn't make any sense and has a host of practical difficulties but now really makes no sense and we're we're coming to the wages of that I can't believe a dragon died for this stupid plan yeah. Spencer uh and and that's the thing we have that whole scene. We've had a, a number of scenes of of Danny and Tyrion and Dan and and the whole other uh, crew of clowns uh, that came up with this idea, talking about it and talking about it. We have another what ten minute scene of Danny and Tyrion talking about you know what the plan is, and it still makes no sense. Uh, they're going to go meet Cersei, and they have to be careful of Cersei and something something something. I, he let me ask you this too mm-hmm. this is is it is it me or do a lot of these conversations feel a lot less nuanced now that they're not drawing from George R. R. Martin's dialogue because I feel like a lot of the time they sound good but when you actually think about them there isn't a lot going on except what is extremely obvious or makes no sense yeah I think you have something there um there's there's definitely a facility with these characters that you know unless you are their actual author, as George R. R. Martin is, you can't really hope to match. But I'm, I'm kind of less concerned about um, the way the characters sound and, and behave than I am um, when, I, when I look at that scene between um, Tyrion and Danny, than I am with, with kind of the, the, the overarching theme that it presents, which is something that we talked about a little bit last week, but now seems to really be on display, which is the the contrast between Tyrion thinking about how Daenerys wins the peace, and again, a term I absolutely loathe for a variety of reasons, winning the peace is just a very dumbed-down way of saying secure the victory, um, and Daenerys talking about winning the war. 
And there I found however much Tyrion's plan is, is just straight up stupid, and it is. Um, nevertheless, there's, there's an important tension that came out in that conversation between sort of Danny's conception of, 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 of conquest and Tyrion's conception of what conquest is for that I think sort of bears some, some teasing out. Um, at one point earlier in the season, uh, when Cersei is talking with uh, the banker, Tycho Nestoris, uh, Cersei plays on Daenerys being a revolutionary leader. That, you know, typically not something bankers really want to see in the world because, you know, not great investments. These are people who can be prone to nationalizing bank assets, all that stuff. Sure. But here I think we saw Tyrion with a much more uh, sort of mature, subtle, and and uh, explicit conception of what Daenerys' revolutionary rule would actually be. Um, I still don't think we have a really good answer yet, um, but but it seemed like, and tell me if you if you disagree with this, that that Danny is kind of resting on her laurels as the 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 breaker of chains halfway across the world, without really giving much of a sense of what breaking the wheel will actually mean. And here, it seemed like Tyrion. If he wasn't offering a necessarily positive conception of what that would actually entail, was at least talking about what she would have to rule out if she really wants to leave this option of what her rule would be open to her. I yeah, I I think that's true, but I also think that uh, defining yourself and your your strategy and your values as a leader by what you're not isn't always the best plan. Um, and not necessarily a persuasive one to other people. But, you know, it's it's interesting that they talk, uh, Tyrion talks specifically about uh, Aegon, her father, being someone who built the wheel, um, which I don't think we've, we've heard them explicitly say before. Aegon Targaryen got quite a long way on fear. He did. But you once spoke to me of breaking the wheel. Aegon built a wheel. That's the kind of queen you want to be. How are you different from all the other tyrants that came before you? You know, her whole claim to the throne is about the fact that she is her father's daughter, but she's come back to essentially tear that down. Uh, But I think you're absolutely right that we don't know what that means. Um, You know, Tyrion suggests that she... I mean, but this is part of why I didn't like this conversation. I feel like everything that was said in it has been said before. Tyrion has... They've already said a million times, you can't roll in with the dragons and breathe fire over tens of thousands of people and kill them if that's not the kind of leader that you want to be. And they end up saying it again. I just... Yeah, I, I, I really felt like instead of, for example, actually advancing a conversation about what a world could look like, uh, what is this world that where where things are going to look different? Like, what could that mean? You know, Tyrion is, is starts talking about legacy, which is something that she doesn't want to discuss at all. What 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 will happen after she dies, since she has no children and believes she can have none? What is you know because there's been so much turmoil for the entirety of Game of Thrones and before it. You know, Tyrion's thinking about a lasting peace, and that's not a conversation that she wants to engage with. Well, what I I, I take all your points about that. A lot of it did seem like uh, a rehash of, of where we'd gone before, but I think there were points that at least it, it advanced, maybe, again, not a satisfying definition 
of what breaking the wheel means, but at least, you know, starting to think through some of its complexities. And one of them definitely is this this legacy question. I, I found it sort of less um, satisfying when they started to turn this on the question of, you know, a line of succession, because that's a kind of programmatic thing. I thought what, what sort of made for a, a richer discussion was Tyrion thinking about what it will mean to secure whatever new order Danny sets up. Because as we see in the real world, like we 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 get a lot of revanchism when you have even uh, the slowest amount of, of, of discernible social progress. The United States of America, I think I would certainly argue is living through, you know, a massive backlash right now. Um, a friend of mine wrote for the Atlantic, Adam Serwer, uh, Adam, I hope this was your piece, um, that, that we may be living through um, a second uh, redemption, which is to say, um, you know, following the end of Reconstruction um, after the Civil War, uh, basically there was a giant white backlash and we're living through perhaps uh, the, the, the second coming of that again. And, and that's the sort of thing that, you know, transposed to to Game of Thrones, we have, I think, a fairly good allegory for looking at it. Whatever Danny does, particularly because of you know all of the reasons that that Cersei is able to to um, quickly harvest for their propagandistic values, you know the foreign element, um, the fact that she's coming atop these reptilian nuclear weapons, and so on and so forth. There's going to be a huge appetite amongst the people that she would eventually seek to rule over to revert to, you know, the status quo that either works out for them or in the case of, of those, you know, who, who lose out on that status quo to resist her. So what ultimately secures this new social order that Danny hasn't quite gotten around to, to defining? Well, and the thing is, too, the new social order, I think... One thing that we saw absolutely in Essos was that when she upset the social order, there was an enormous amount of backlash from the powerful. Um, if if you're uh, if you're reallocating uh, money or power from a system where those things aren't equal, the people you're taking it away from, even if they disproportionately have those things uh, beyond reason, uh, are going to get upset when you take them away, uh, and. Maybe that's part of why she hasn't discussed it, because I've been trying to think about, you know, what was her what was her agenda in Essos? Freeing slaves. Uh, There are no slaves in Westeros. So what does she bring? What does it mean to break the wheel in Westeros? Is she going to upend the patriarchy? Is it there going to be women's rights? Is it is she concerned with the poor? Uh, Is she going to, you know, is there going to be a chicken in every pot? I feel like it's it even knowing Danny as we do, you and I, Spencer, so intimately, um, (laughs) it it really is hard for me to tell what precisely she's going to offer, aside from some sort of vague sense of justness. We, I think, might do well to just remember the conversation from early on in the season between uh, Sansa and Jon, where Sansa's arguing that you have to reallocate um, resources taken from your enemies to your allies. Is Danny going to do something like that? Like, you know, and if she does that, one could see that being, you know, in some sense, certainly in some limited immediate sense, redistributive. 
But is that in fact revolutionary? What what constitutes breaking the wheel? If if it's just you know one family rules over something else that another family used to have, that seems much more like you know, continuation than any kind of revolutionary action. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it would be really revolutionary and break the wheel to not have a monarchy anymore. Uh, Because here's the thing that Tyrion realizes, which is that she could have the justest, most, you know, peaceful, golden reign for her entire lifetime. But if power reverts back to a tyrant after her, uh, very little will have been gained. Uh, and, and which is why he brings up succession. But but yeah, I think there is that bigger question, too. I mean, can you break the wheel and still have a monarchy fundamentally? Another question that immediately comes up there is if Danny, as we've sort of seen, you know, at several times throughout the series, kind of isn't interested in governing, that she's interested in conquest, then who, in fact, is is this revolutionary agenda left to? And, you know, the most immediate candidate for that is Tyrion Lannister. And, you know, we started out this episode talking about how his schemes are just not trustworthy and we've reached the point where they're simply not credible. So if this is the person who's got to carry out some ill-defined but far-sweeping revolutionary agenda, what in the world are we are we actually going to see? And then again, you know, I, I've been harping on this forever, but like, if that's also the case, then Tyrion is someone whom Westeros knows and hates. If you're going to have someone like that really being a kind of shadow leader, then how do you actually build support for this except through fear? Yeah, and 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 that's something that, that Tyrion has brought up to her several times now in their repetitive conversations is, you know, that the one thing holding her back more than anything else is the fact that she's not rolling into King's Landing with her dragons and... Uh, breathing fire on tens of thousands of innocent people because she doesn't want to rule through fear. She doesn't want to be that kind of queen. Uh, but again, like, you know, Masande brought up in a previous episode that, you know, everyone that came over from Essos did it out of love because they really, truly believe in her. I mean, and I, I think that's something that would be difficult to achieve for her in Westeros um, at this point in time, you know, to, cause what could she do for people? What could she give to them? You know, if, even in a populist sense, what could she offer the common person that, uh, would be equivalent to the, the, the type of freedom that she offered, uh, her followers in Essos? Uh, the only answer I can think of is that she can save them from an oncoming horde of the undead. That they and, don't even know about. Well, I guess you're, you know, the the way that logic leads you is toward this Tyrion plan, except the target of, of your, uh, you know, kidnapped zombie is the average person and not um, the, you know, mad queen Cersei Lannister. But that actually does give us, you know, a, a bit of a segue to, to a moment on the show that, that really did seem like Daenerys truly earning her her monarchy. And that's, you know at this moment of absolute abject failure and despair in which our seven samurai seem like, you know, all is lost, I guess six, because we lost, you know, poor Thoros of Mir. Um, here comes, don't forget those, uh, don't forget the two randos that they brought up there specifically to like get eaten by bears. Oh yeah. The baggage train guys, you, 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 you poor forgotten. I don't even know if they're night's watch or whatever, but, um, outside of that, uh, here you did have Daenerys, in a true moment of, of, of regnal power where she brings all three dragons to bear and 
we we see, of course, and we are going to talk a whole lot about this in just a second. Um, obviously, one of those dragons we got to assume Viserion because you know the 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 kind of poetic rhyme with her dead brother um, actually dies in the course of this battle. But that's a kind of lagging indicator of the fact that Daenerys makes a decision that possibly everything that she's working for could be undone if she doesn't ride to the rescue. And once she makes up her mind that she is willing to do that, she brings all of her power to bear. All three dragons, all three of these nuclear weapons, all the nukes are in the air at that point. And that signals where she really is all in and what she thinks is essentially worth gambling everything on. Um, And, you know, we know because we know that the uh, armies of the dead are real, that that's the right decision, that that in that moment, and it's still like this ultimately moment of trust between Daenerys and Jon, um, really Danny acts like the, the, the princess who was promised, someone whom we've been waiting for to take this, you know, true existential threat to everyone seriously and then act on it. And that seems like the moment where she really is queen of Westeros. And I'm honestly, I'm really bummed for Thoros that he didn't get to see this. Uh, it seems like a, the sort of moment he's been waiting for with all of his Lord of Light stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, and Danny really does get to play the role that, you know, if if you think about traditional fantasy tropes, that, you know, the prince, you know, the, the handsome prince who rides in at the end on his uh, noble steed and saves the day. Uh, you know, that's sort of the role that, that she gets to occupy while John ends up more sort of in this, this damsel-like role. Uh, where he appears trapped with all these other people. Um, but yeah, it's... And, and I, I, you know, I think we know the moment the dragon goes down that um, that she's won the North. You know, that, that the sacrifice... I, I think it would be impossible to imagine her making that type of sacrifice and, and, and not ultimately winning Jon's loyalty. So we should at this point, I think, probably talk about this absolutely insane Fakakta... Um, supposed strategy whereby, you know, capture a zombie and, you know, you you beat a a quick path to the the throne in King's Landing? Yeah, I think the idea is basically to be Michonne from The Walking Dead (laughs) and just chain up a zombie and walk it back. Uh, It remains nonsensical. Even if Cersei sees it and acknowledges that a zombie exists, she has no idea what the scale of the threat is. Um, and, and whether or not she can or will prioritize it over her more immediate struggle, uh, with Daenerys. And I think that even if she did believe them 100% that, that the threat is what they say it is, and it is as important as they say it is, that she would not still use that opportunity to screw Daenerys at all of their expenses. And it's for this stupidity that we lose Thoros of Mir and a whole dragon. I mean, it just, as you say... Even if it all works out, it doesn't knit up to what Daenerys wants. And even more insane for Tyrion to suggest, if they had just waited a week, right? Like, take the dragons to King's Landing and basically, like, start a show of force and, you know, besiege them from the air. Something that basically makes um, Cersei either sue for peace or, you know, force Daenerys to burn her and, you know, perhaps not... Uh, the other uh, residents of King's Landing, at that point, Danny wins and then can turn her attention to this thing that they've got to do up north and no one is worse off for that. 
um, you see, you know, Tyrion in that moment talk about how, you know, we're, you know, when we finally meet Cersei, there'll be two armies and three dragons. Well, first of all, definitely not three dragons now, but they could have had that right now if they had just followed up whatever they did at the Field of Fire by going to King's Landing and just waiting one second before they go back north of the Wall. They wouldn't have had to deal with, with the Lannisters at all, and they would have been in a much obviously stronger position, even if everything else doesn't go well by the sheer fact that they have three dragons and now they have two. Um, and we'll talk about, again, that in one second. Um, this idiotic plan, certainly in practice, would be completely unnecessary. And and what do we see in practice when we're actually north of the wall, aside from like some buddy cop stuff, um, some like weird uh, kind of uh, cliche, you know, uh, soldiers in a foxhole right before uh, the shit goes down. Like, did, like I sort of figured, you know, Tormund was dead as soon as he starts talking about, like, settling down with Brienne. Uh, yes. So that, that yes. didn't happen. I thought for sure he was going in the water, yeah. That, that in fairness, didn't happen. But nevertheless, you, you, it sort of really did seem like a kind of, you know, corny moment in a war movie. Well, and I, I, I think that they, the writers seem to really enjoy putting together all of these different characters, uh, that have been on opposite sides or had conflicts at earlier points. Like, oh, yeah, did you remember how those dudes sold Gendry to a witch? I'd actually kind of forgotten. I can see why he was upset about that. But I, I just, you know, I feel like it. they've ended up being an opportunity for the writers to sort of harken back to all of these earlier moments in the series. And I guess that's cool. It's fine. But, you know, it 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 just seems like it's more like a lot of, hey, hey, don't you remember that scene? As opposed to anything that actually feels emotionally resonant. I mean, you know, there is even that moment where um, uh, Beric and John are talking and you're like, oh, yeah, these are the two guys who got brought back from the dead. Um, but I don't know, like none of those, none of those, uh, conversations with those guys really landed for me or felt like anything more than banter in the end. It seemed like if we have, you know, this, this pivotal moment in this story and you have these seven characters together and, you know, seven is a a kind of special, um, number in the numerology of Game of Thrones, you, we should have been able to see some real, you know, themes develop from it. And certainly from the discussion between Beric and John about, you know, the enemy that they're fighting. I, I'm, I'm trying to kind of mine this for significance, and I'm not sure what I'm coming up with because, you know, Beric gives this very fatalistic line about how, you know, the real enemy is death. John points out that death is always going to win. And Beric says something about how, well, you just got to fight it anyway. Yeah. It, well, I was going to say, yeah, and it's 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 interesting, too, that they both bring up the fact that they've been brought back from the dead and uh, that this must have happened for a reason. Uh, and, you know, I, I think we've gotten a little bit of that, this sort of metatextual sense before. Um, but, you know... John says, what's the point of serving to God if none of us knows what he wants? And Thoreau says, I don't think it's our purpose to understand. And I, I feel like there is a little, I don't know that the show intends it, but to me at least, it speaks to the sense that I don't know why a lot of these things are happening. Hey, they don't either. It's it's There's a little bit of that, that sense of like, I guess the plot is just propelling all of this. And I guess we're along for the ride and we don't really know why, but we know that there's a place that someone wants us to end up and we're going there, I guess. 
I guess. Um, I, I, you know, when looking at, you know, this onslaught of whites. By the way, does the show ever actually call them whites? I think they called them that last week, but that might be a book vestige that they didn't really think to introduce. I think they've they've, they've called them whites before. Okay. Um, so the whites seem to be both, like, at turns, pretty good soldiers and, and pretty terrible ones. Um, I didn't really get a lot of thematic consistency there. I, I call them good soldiers only because, like, A, uh, they, they, qui- they, they quickly know how to funnel um, uh, these seven uh, fighters into a, an untenable um, bit of terrain and then flank them. So, you know, I, I don't, I, I guess if they're just kind of undead husks, that might be, you know, the strategy of the Knights King or, you know, maybe one of those, I guess, horseback generals that maybe he has. I have no idea how this actually works, right? Um, but then they seem, when the actual melee happens, to kind of fight one at a time. And that was just kind of visually unimpressive. I guess maybe they have to do that for, you know, the sheer purpose of, 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 storytelling because otherwise like look obviously those seven guys were were gonna die if this was in fact an encirclement and um you know the odds just aren't in their favor no matter what so i don't know how much it's uncharitable to actually focus on that but not a whole lot of military significance i can you know really attach to the way the whites the whites operated um from another point of inconsistency uh Sometimes they can swim, sometimes they can't, and that actually is a pretty big plot point that you would need to to establish if this whole scenario is going to work. Yeah. Have, have you ever played Dynasty Warriors? No. As we've established, you are the gamer, and I am oh, okay. definitely it just not. reminded me a little of Dynasty Warriors. It's this. It's a. It's a. It's a battle game where you're surrounded by overwhelming enemies and unrealistically cut your way through them. Shall we say? Uh, so it reminded me. It reminded me a bit of that. And it was interesting to me too that the um, the whites seem to show some basic reasoning skills. Uh, like they could tell when you know the there was that moment of recognition when one of them who didn't have a jaw and probably not a brain hmm. uh, realized that the rock wasn't going through the ice, which is like some advanced level. Like would a cat know that? I don't know. It's hard to tell. Like what what level of animal intelligence do you think that they're at? I mean, it seems like what we're really saying is that uh, white people are judged by. Um, standards that are that are pretty rock bottom in order to succeed it's it's true it's true there's there's the the expectations are are quite low could could we say that you know perhaps this showed the hollowness of white supremacy it's yes there was there's far much less substance to the to the whites in the end than uh perhaps we might have thought from their prior successes uh if a white saw itself in a mirror, would it would it know what it was? I'm still stuck on this animal thing. Like, how smart do you think they are? Well, I wonder because they established that, um, you know, the connection is severed. Basically, like, if, if I guess, like, the white walkers are like the router. And, um, you know, you, you, you kind of screw up the Wi-Fi if you, if you kill one of them. Um, so does it actually depend on, you know, the particular savviness of the various white walkers? Um, are some of them smarter than others because of it? I have no idea. The show isn't, you know, interested in these rules. The books aren't really interested in these rules. 
So we can kind of pour them over forever, but I don't really know toward what end. <laughs> I'm interested, Spencer. I'm always interested in the stupid rules. Laura, oh, no, I'm just oh, curious about it. It's whether is the would an ice spider be as smart as or less smart than a regular spider? An ice dragon? I'm just saying these are questions we could ask. Do, do you think like the White Walkers are ever kind of embarrassed at how you know stupid? Uh, uh, I mean, I think absolutely. I, I don't think that they view them. I mean, maybe there's like a caste system, right? I don't think they view them as like full people. Um, but maybe it's like, a, remember Battlestar Galactica? How the Cylons saw their ships where mm-hmm. they were like yeah. sort of halfway between like a pet and an animal and a machine. Like I could see the White Walkers having a similar relationship with the Whites. Mm. Well, I mean, I guess what, what we really have is you know the White Walkers is the uh, the manipulators, those pulling the strings, and you know left to left to follow these rules are what I guess we would call the white working class. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy this episode. I can tell. Um, but oh, so when the the first White Walker comes up and John hits him with a sword and he dies, and then all of the whites die that were in its thrall or whatever, I thought that was the Night King at first, and I was like, oh, cool. Guess the show's over. <laughs> like it really took me a second to realize uh, that that was not that was not he. Um, but uh, you know, so I mean, we've we've clearly established that they 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 set out the stakes with the Night King's the Night's King as plainly as they possibly could when they say, "Oh hey, if we kill that one guy, the whole battle will be over." And they don't kill that one guy, but it makes me feel like at a critical point in the future, perhaps they will kill that one guy. So. You tell me whether whether you think this this makes sense to talk about or not. But I have a theory about the Night King. Um, I want to hear it. We were discussing this on we were, we were texting about this the other day. Um, mm-hmm. Oh oh yes, go for it. So like this is my crazy prediction, and you know maybe honestly like if this is wrong, I don't care. I'm shooting my shot on this. You can you can laugh at me on the internet. Um, my guess is that the whole reason we saw that scene in the cave with Hodor establishing that casting Bran's consciousness back through time has like serious consequences and layered on top of that three-eyed ravenness that uh, Bran is also a warg and can control people through his consciousness when necessary. My guess is at a certain point, Bran is going to be kind of consciousness casting throughout, you know, time as, you know, someone, someone cleverly called him Dr. Branhatton. We've been calling him basically like Stark Professor X, but I like Dr. Branhatton too. Um, he's going to be, you know, doing that. It's all going to be going, you know, pretty okay for him, pretty typical. Uh, and then we're, you know, we're going to see his physical body meet some disaster and or certain doom. And his, you know, reflex mechanism is to basically warg into someone from the past. And I'm guessing it's going to be the guy that Leaf and the other children of the forest captures, who then they turn into the Night King. And what we're going to see from, you know, the Night King going forward and his motivation is either A, to ensure, like with that scene at the cave, that like Bran definitely reaches a point where he can kind of incept the Night King into being, or alternatively, like some remnant of Bran is motivating the Night King to kind of break this horrible circle and, you know, have that kind of resonate with the theme of breaking the wheel. That's my crazy theory. 
Interesting. So he's kind of kind of going to do a Back to the Future, where he's going to slowly start disappearing while he's playing guitar if uh, if he can't get the timeline back in order. I was kind of thinking about it in terms of like like early '90s uh, DC comics, where like I think they do that at the vanishing point at one point okay. for like okay. was it zero? I think it's zero hour, um, something like that. But I mean, like you know, mm-hmm. you as oh man, you know, the former hour. editor of Comics Alliance. I, I think we've both read certainly um, enough comics to know how like this could happen. It's true. Uh, it's it's maybe that's how we uh, we get our next uh, HBO series if they uh, decide to dunk Confederate. <laughs> we just get a we get alternate universe. We get a we get new DC Game of Thrones. <laughs> so um, now that we you know to pivot away from my my um, possibly in, you know stupid theory Tyrion Lannister stupid theory. Um, so we've seen a dragon die and we've seen a dragon die, uh, and be resurrected. Um, surely that dragon is going to be, you know, I think it's fair to say how the wall comes down. But, um, if the dragons are nuclear weapons, now I think we've introduced the problem of, of loose nukes as the, the nuclear wonks call them. Um, yeah. Question, question, mm -hmm. question. If it's an ice dragon, does it still breathe fire? Maybe it's like a like an icy flame. I don't. I have no idea what I'm talking about. But yeah, the great question. I the drag. Well, look, the dragon has no utility unless it breathes fire, right? I, yeah. I mean, like you can't breathe ice. I'm like, what would ice be if it's fire? I'm like, these aren't real questions. These things yeah, can't, probably, can't be true. <laughs> I don't know. They'll they'll color the fire blue. We have like the green fire of wildfire. It's probably going to be like I don't know some white white walkery uh, blue blue flame. But you know. In the early 90s, after the breakup of the Soviet Union and, you know, resurrected again after 9-11 is this um, geopolitical fear of, of, of what we call the loose nuke problem. Basically, when you have nuclear weapons, you want very badly to secure them. You definitely don't want them to go into any hands except the ones that, that you possess. Um, and now we had, we had previously established that, you know, Daenerys had this ultimate weapon, uniquely so, that there was no nuclear competitor for her and accordingly um, no no power that could withstand her. Now we have this problem that the greatest enemy that, that any of them will face now possesses a nuclear weapon as well. Um, whether Cersei thinks, you know, there might be some utility to that if she even knows about it, or alternatively, just that the the, the, the ultimate enemy, the White Walkers have them, um, strikes me as, you know, perhaps the most, you know, terrifying loose nuke problem we could have, given that, you know, in, in this world we have no, you know, marauding horde of, of the undead. Well, also, it's it's a it's a, a giant weapon that, that breathes fire, and uh, the one uh, architectural feature that is preventing the armies from going south is a wall made of ice. So. Yeah, so much for that. It's it's funny because in the in the books, right? Uh, there's the horn of winter. Uh, there's that notion that there's a horn that could bring down the wall when blown, uh, which I don't necessarily think plays as big of a role in the in the show. But I'm wondering if maybe that's a show adaptation of whatever you know labyrinthine plot uh, George R. R. Martin had wrapping around the horn that maybe just uh, maybe the dragon's going to take it down instead. Yeah, I mean, I it just seems no. You don't like that theory. I just, you know, assume that, you know, this um, 
this kind of horn of, of Joraman, or I think that's what it's called, um, probably isn't that genuine in the books. And like, cause it just seems like a, the kind of hokey fantasy trope that, that Martin typically likes to, to make fun of, um, you know, but here you have, you know, an equalization of force in some, in some significant sense, uh, you know, obviously, you know, two dragons is better than one, but one dragon is better than none. And now if there's some kind of, um, real serious check on, on Danny's ability to launch essentially a first strike, um, you know, how do you deter a white walker? Here's a here's another question for you mm-hmm. uh, because I'm I'm thinking about how the White Walkers might mobilize this dragon. Are they just going to want to go and wipe everyone out in the gift, or do they want those people to not be charred skeletons so that they can acquire them into their army? What are their goals? What what is it? What will they? What do you think that they want to do or would do with the dragon? I kind of you know came up with this brand theory out of out of pure utility because I'm so starved for motivation on the part of the night king is he just some you know blue-eyed jerk who's who's deciding like humanity's come to an end and um i'm gonna you know offer you know the true uh liberation from life i i have no idea it's it's just you know purely a fantasy villain that seems you know like sauron i suppose um motivated by the fact that it is you know um dark side is that sort of thing like like i i don't i don't know what his game is i don't know what his end game is and and i like i kind of like him to be brand stark in some form just because it would you know make a richer character and then perhaps from there we can come up with some motivation but i don't know it's so funny too to to see this sort of as as the the end game for Game of Thrones, a show that's been so much about subverting fantasy tropes and kind of turning them on their head, and a show that has uh, done so much, you know, with you know the occasional Ramsay and Joffrey aside to humanize uh, its antiheroes and its villains, um, and you know that that the the great villain of the show ends up being pretty two-dimensional uh i and and you know and that the characters are engaging with it in in such a strategically haphazard and unnuanced way i don't know it feels very not game of thrones to me in a sense yeah i mean i i i I think we have to wonder at this point if the show is gonna wrap up with you know the resolution of the game of thrones or the show is going to wrap up with you know a sense that the Game of Thrones is ultimately irrelevant and or, as we've discussed before, a means towards settling the question of how best we fight this very standard fantasy enemy. And I don't know. Um, I, I, I I don't know how um, you would really... Like, like at this point, um, who cares about the zombie? Who cares about bringing the zombie to Cersei? It seems like the much better argument is that you know, you go to Cersei, if you feel like you've got to engage in this idiotic plan at all, then the thing to do is to tell Cersei, like, so these things can kill a dragon. Um, you probably feel pretty afraid of these dragons, and frankly, now we do too. So let's see if we can come up with with some way of beating this. And even as I'm talking this through, while I think that is probably the right, you know, unifying motivation, it seems just like on its face like not really a great way of, of telling people almost Beric Dondarrion, like you got to fight this thing. Cause you got to fight this thing. Even if you figure you're not really going to win. 
Right. I mean, and, and Cersei in particular is not given to uh, acts of random heroism towards others. Uh, working for the common good, not so much. Yeah, I just think this plan is is, is terminal. Um, there's there's no way to redeem this except, I suppose, by an, by an act of narrative intervention, uh, which makes um, our job uh, to discuss themes of this stuff and its resonance uh, much harder. Um, so there's one more, as you put it, uh, bad strategy to discuss here, um, and that's Littlefinger's. I don't even understand what happened. And you know what? I'm not even sure it's Littlefinger's fault. But I, So Littlefinger uh, has essentially created a problem uh, so that he can solve it, or so it appears. Uh, he agitates Arya to be upset with Sansa, uh, which turns out to be not very hard. And then, you know, Sansa turns to him and asks for advice, and, and he's able to to give her a solution, which is, why don't you go talk to Brienne? Uh, she and Arya seem to be getting along, plus Brienne has, you know, pledged herself to uh, defend both of the Stark sisters. And and Sansa seems to see the wisdom in that and thinks that, you know, that's a good way forward to sort of resolve this situation. Then, in basically the next scene, instead of doing any of that, she just sends Brienne to King's Landing. And that's the end of that plot. So... That happened. And then Arya comes in and kind of threatens to cut Sansa's face off. So she definitely didn't resolve that problem. What did you make of the fact that Arya didn't? Because I I don't really understand what happened there. I don't think that she she did not go in there to kill her. She went in there to scare with to scare her. She went in there to scare her. She went in there to mess with her Um, because I, I think she's unhappy with her sister um, like, that's the thing, though, is that Sansa hasn't done anything that's, as you say, terminal. You know, she hasn't actually, you know, I, you know, Arya's thrown around words like betrayal pretty fast and loose, but Sansa didn't actually betray anyone. She hasn't actively worked against Jon. She didn't meaningfully work against Ned in any real way. Uh, so I think I think Arya is just kind of pissed off and disappointed and uh, feels in many ways that Sansa is still uh, the frivolous uh, girl that she once knew her to be. And now I think she also, uh, she fears that Sansa may have a little of the power hunger. And to a certain degree, she's right. You know, I, th- I think Sansa does want power. I think that Arya is incisive enough to see something in Sansa that's real, which is that she does want to rule. But, you know, she would never be willing to... Uh, cause harm to any member of her family to get it. However much um, Ari is unfair to Sansa, I did kind of appreciate that there there is really a gap between perception and reality here that that gives Arya somewhat of a plausible argument. Um, when last she saw Sansa, you know, Ned was about to die and Sansa was kind of on the dais supporting the people, at least on the face of it, who were about to kill Ned. And she doesn't know the backstory about what brought Sansa there um, and just seems like if one wants to stick with a really uncharitable reading of that, then fine. But I thought it diminished Arya as a character by her unwillingness to recognize that like other people have had to go through unspeakable experiences to get where they've gone. Oh, I, I think this is also the first time when maybe Arya feels scary to the audience uh, because we've, you know, we all cheered when she, I guess, cut up those dudes and made them into a pie and fed them to their dad, even though that's an unbelievably messed up thing straight out of Greek mythology. Um, 
But, you know, they were the bad guys. They were the phrase. And that's the thing is, you know, she's become a super assassin, a super murderer, uh, a, a serial killer, uh, even you could say. Um, but it's always felt kind of heroic to us because she's killing people that we like. And I think here for the first time, we sort of see that like that cold eyed thing uh, that that she has. She has the look of a killer in her eye and she's looking at a character that we like. And I, I think that uh, to me, at least, I I saw her a little differently. I I did not think she was going to kill Sansa or cut her face off. Um, but I, I do think she wanted to, you know, to scare her a little. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that your larger point about the fact that, you know, neither of them really knows what the other has been through, so they don't understand who, who the other person is. We see Sansa going through Arya's bag and she finds a bunch of faces that Arya cut off people, you know, like, like you do going through any <laughs> teenage girl's stuff. Um, I only this, assumed. Yes. No, that's, that's, that's what we all had hidden in our, our trapper keepers. Um, but. I don't understand to a certain degree why they haven't sat down to have a conversation. You know, they have that moment in the crypt of, uh, a couple episodes back where they say, you know, I've it's a long story. I've been through so much, blah, blah, blah. She's been there days, probably like maybe a week or so or whatever. How have they not sat down and had a conversation about where they've been and what they've been through? How, how have they not done a recap, Spencer? I wondered... Whether um, Sansa's grip on power is as tenuous as she thinks it is, if if the Northern Lords would, you know, basically go along with this Arya scenario whereby, you know, if, if Arya leaks that letter, would they really find Sansa to have committed an unpardonable act? No, honestly, I don't believe that either. Like, I think that's I think that's another not so great plan, or at least not super convincing plan, you know, to be like. To be like, I was like 12 and Cersei, you know, basically threatened my life if I didn't write it. I don't know. I feel like it's pardonable to most people. The only reason why it feels plausible at all that um, that Arya is as upset as she is is because she's Sansa's younger sister. Mm -hmm. And because her whole thing is vengeance. And they have all these pre-existing, you know, sort of bitter dynamics between them to begin with. I, you know, even Arya recognizes Jon would not be that upset. He would forgive her because it's a totally understandable situation, and I think most other people would feel that way as well. So, no, I don't believe in this plan either. So, I guess the the last thing to say about about that uh, interaction uh, is this really fascinating discussion that they have right before they're at each other's throats, in which Arya kind of gives this this sort of gender critique, um, in which she points out that. Um, you know, Ned had formally disapproved uh, because of social necessity of Arya, you know, trying to get better as a as a marksman um, until the point where Arya realizes that, you know, Ned was proud of his daughter for, for doing this and for her defiance and for her spirit um, and then gives this kind of casually profound line. Uh, the rules were wrong. Right. Um and again, this is this is Ned, the father that got her the quote unquote dancing lessons uh, that were actually sword lessons that they, you know, code word named dancing lessons. Um, but there's that moment after Arya says the rules were wrong that she said that, you know, he knew I was doing what I was meant to be doing, uh, that even if the world around them wasn't able to recognize like, you know, her abilities and, 
her passions and her destiny in a way that her father saw it and that you know that was something he wanted her to follow through on and you know later on when they have that talk uh the much scarier talk uh in Sansa's room uh where there's again the vague implication that uh Arya might flay her sister's face off um uh, Arya starts talking about her time at the House of Black and White and how she trained to become a faceless man. And she says the world doesn't just let girls decide what they're going to be, you know, that she wanted to be a knight. Well, guess what? She didn't get to. Something Cersei used to say, too. Uh, and she's like, but I can now. Like, the, the faces allow her uh, to, to slip into uh, the positions and the roles and the kind of uh social privilege that she had always wanted it has given her the versatility to escape her gender and become anything that she wants and so yeah there's 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 definitely a a sense that the path that she has gone down is is one of liberation uh from from gender roles in a way that i don't think we've seen you know any other character quite grasp well it, it immediately raises the question about whether that's that's Arya finding a mechanism of escape for herself that, you know, the rest of, of, of Westeros can't possibly enjoy without becoming, you know, faceless men themselves. <laughs> or whether, you know, as, as we may find, um, you know, Tyrion instantiating, that this is going to be what breaking the wheel means. Um, in which case, you know, we, we're, we're, we're on to something far more profound than... Um, uh, feudal-based wealth redistribution. You know, we we would be looking at really a wholesale social change. Um, and I think from the perspective of a lot of people, you know, watching this story unfold um, with our current sensibilities, we would we would immediately cheer that and see the 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 wisdom in it and see the justice of it. Um, it would inevitably, as a real-world uh, analog. Uh, be greeted with a tremendous, perhaps overwhelming amount of, of social resistance. And I wonder if that's going to be the direction that um, the rule of Daenerys Targaryen ultimately takes. I mean, it's it's interesting because we see a little bit of that in the North when, they, uh, when Jon suggests arming and training women as well as men. And one of the Northern Lords says, I'm not going to put a spear in the hand of my daughter. And then uh, the young Mormon girl uh, totally schools him and it's awesome. Um, but of course there would be that resistance, but I mean, you know, think about this too. I mean, I, I think that dealing with, I think poverty is, is one of, you know, her major platform issues, Daenerys. Um, but you know, if you also think about the fact that women aren't really full people in Westeros, they don't get to participate in society and in the roles of society and in social power, uh, in barely any of the ways that men do, even at their most powerful. Uh, again, prior to Cersei uh, and Daenerys. Um, so, you know, if you are going to take on a social cause, because, you know, race kind of isn't something that really comes up too meaningfully in Westeros. I mean, the fact that half of the population is kind of treated like a subperson might be a, a, not a terrible cause d'etre. Those are chains to break. Those are meaningful are. chains, and uh, we have a plausible candidate to do the breaking. Um, and you know, to be barrack-like for a moment, just because you you know encounter resistance doesn't mean uh, that you fold, and doesn't mean that that the cause is is in some way diminished. Um, I think you know a lot of us would would look at that and say 
it is a testament to the importance of the cause that it would meet that resistance. Uh, and that's probably a lesson for this world as well as uh, the world of Game of Thrones. Um, and with that, uh, thanks very much for joining us on our sixth episode of uh, this season of Citadel Dropouts. Uh, we had the very good fortune of Jesse Rhodes stepping in out of nowhere and producing this one uh, when our uh, regularly, regularly scheduled producer, Jeremy Dalmas, uh, couldn't make it. So thanks so much to Jesse. Um, we'll be back next Monday um, for uh, the climactic finale of this season of Game of Thrones and this season of Citadel Dropouts. Uh, in the meantime, Laura, where can people find your work online? Uh, they can find my Game of Thrones recaps and a lot of my other writing at Wired, and they can find me on Twitter at Laura underscore Hudson. Awesome. And I'm Spencer Ackerman. You can find me this week covering all manner of national security for the Daily Beast, and you can find me on Twitter at Attackerman. Um, until then, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much for everyone who's written in um, to, to discuss the show with us, who's tweeted at us, um, who said nice things about us, who shared the program. Um, if you like this, Please, please, please uh, rate us positively on iTunes. If you don't like us, just move on. You're doing all the things well. Um, thanks very much. Uh, we'll be back next week with the season finale of Citadel Droppings. <laughs>